We come on to chapter 5, which is called Being Dharma. And the first uh, of the Dharma talks is called Beyond Cause and Effect. And um, this uh, actually uh, (coughs) gave the title for the the second of Lumpur Chah's books of Dharma teachings that were translated into English. Uh, In the English version is called uh, Taste of Freedom. And um, the uh, Thai version is Nok Het Nirpon, which means outside of cause and above effect. Once in the past, I was living with a group, uh, a small group of monks. We stayed in the forest, but we had a small sala, meditation hall, and an altar without much light. One monk was reading a book there, and when his candle burned down, he left the book and went away. Another monk came along and stepped on the book in the dark. He picked it up and thought, hmm, that monk doesn't have much mindfulness. Why didn't he know to put the book away? He found the first monk and asked him, why didn't you put the book away? I came and stepped on it. The first monk replied, you didn't have self-control. You weren't careful, so you stepped on the Dharma book. And the other responded, why didn't you take care of the book and put it away? Nothing like that ever happens here at Amravati, of course. (laughs) (laughs) They went back and forth, blaming one another for not taking care of the book properly, the other blaming him for not being careful and stepping on the book. It's like this. If you're only looking for logical answers, there will be no end. In the matter of real Dharma, you have to discard cause and effect. Dharma is higher than this. The Dharma the Buddha was enlightened to can quell the mental afflictions and remove suffering. It's above cause and beyond effect. There's no suffering and no happiness. The Dharma the Buddha taught can pacify our lives, purge causes and results. If you just rely on the logic of cause and effect, there'll be endless dispute, like the two monks arguing over stepping on the book. They could go on forever, logically discussing their reasons. There is no peace this way. We who study should learn about cause and effect. Happiness comes from such and such causes. Suffering comes from such and such causes. We come to know that there is always cause and result in actions. But the Dharma realized by the Buddha is pacification, that which is above cause and result, beyond happiness and suffering, beyond birth and death. But now you have even more doubts when you hear about this This is something really important. This is the Dharma that brings peace. So very uh, essential points here. And um, so that in terms of our ordinary worldly perceptions, um, then things begin and end. Words start and finish. Um, Dharma readings begin and end. (coughs) Days begin and end, and so on and so forth. Uh, Lives begin and end. And uh, things function according to, to cause and effect. But um, Lumpur is uh, in this this uh, chapter and in this this theme of the teachings, he's talking about um, the uh, essential Dhamma and the the transcendent qualities of Dhamma. And when we recite the qualities of Dhamma, uh, Sanditiko, apparent here and now, Akaliko, timeless. So if if Dhamma is timeless, what does that say about cause and effect? Cause and effect have to operate through time. I would suggest, we don't, not too much of a stretch to understand that. 
So if Dhamma is timeless, what does that do to cause and effect? <coughs> so it unplugs the whole thing. Uh, there's no basis for, for cause and effect if if there is only the present reality, if, if time is not included as part of the picture. So this is all a bit mind-boggling territory, so you know, one should be prepared to be boggled. You know, hand your bogglement over at the, at the border as you, <laughs> as you enter. At the, and so that it's challenging our habitual ways of thinking of subject-object here, there, past, present, future, so on and so forth. But Lumpur Chah did not uh, shy away from, from these themes because he saw, you know, uh, as long as we think in terms of time and individuality and, and location, then, there's, as he says here, there's no peace, there's no solution. We, you, you can't get through time to, uh, to realizing the Dharma. You can't think your way to, to realization that uh, as long as the mind doesn't go beyond the, the normal uh, obsession or, or preoccupation with uh, thoughts and feelings, perceptions, then liberation is, is really impossible because the mind is focusing on the things which are not liberated, things which are beginning and ending. As he says, uh, the Dharma realized by the Buddha is pacification, that which is above cause and result, beyond happiness and suffering, beyond birth and death. Uh, again, if there's no, if Dhamma is timeless, what does that say about birth and death? <laughs> and uh, as I was quoting that uh, wonderful uh, verse of Hui Neng, the great master Hui Neng, uh, in this moment there is no thing that comes to be, in this moment there is no thing that ceases to be. Thus, in this moment there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Again, it's a bit mind-boggling, but if you really take that in, yeah, if there's no thing, and no actual real thing that is coming into being in this moment, and no thing which was really existent, which comes to an end, what does that say about birth and death? It unplugs the whole, uh, the whole, pic- uh, whole system. And it's to do with our habitual ways of seeing things and our, our conditioned perceptions and rejigging that. And so, uh, again, as uh, I like to, to quote Lumpur Chah's um, comments to a, a, an elderly visitor who came to Wat Bapong, and uh, she said, um, oh, I'm getting very old now, this is my first visit to, to Ubon in a long, long time, uh, can you give me some advice, because my, you know, my life is drawing to a close and it won't be, I haven't got many more years to live. And then Lumpur Chah just very bluntly said to her, those who talk of birth and death are using the language of ignorant children. <laughs> <laughs> Nice to see you too. You know. <laughs> so kind of, uh, but he, uh, uh, you know, he was a great reader of um, people's characters and and capacity. And uh, uh, I guess that he realised that this person was was ready for some high teaching. And just don't confine yourself to that view that you are an old person and that you haven't got much time. That that's just if you're attached to the body, then it's maybe an old body, relatively speaking. But rupang anatta, the body is not self. So. What does it matter how old your body might be? You know, so that he he could be very very direct and helpfully clear in these areas. And so this this dhamma talk been translated a number of different times. But um, uh, so this is where he's speaking about that uh, that domain. But I do I do feel that's there's that kind of helpful themes to to reflect upon. Just to take a little sentence like if the dhamma is a kaliko, what does that say about cause and effect? If the Dhamma is timeless, what does that say about birth and death and my life? And just 
drop that into the into the space of the mind and let the uh, the implications of that the uh, the, uh, the let the heart of digest that and let the 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 sense the the intuitions and understanding that that come from that proposition or that that's that way of describing things let that have its effect on the way the mind uh, perceives and, and operates so any thoughts questions yes sophie as, as just sort of it hasn't it hasn't reverberated very much obviously because we've just been telling it but just in terms of karma you know and all the teachings on karma mm. and that, you know some of the chants about i'm the heir to my karma and born in my karma and all of that and karma is about cause and effect uh-huh. so how does karma come and we talk a lot about putting a good karma creating it how does that intersect with just with with the teaching that you've just been talking about but no cause and effect <laughs> <laughs> yeah cause and effect well it's a good question um, and it comes up quite often because what the, those reflections are I'm the owner of my karma heir to my karma born of my karma it's also like the other subjects for f- frequent recollection I'm of the nature to age I'm of the nature to sick and I'm of the nature to die it starts off at the place of avicca, ignorance, the kind of ordinary everyday understanding. I am a person, I was born, I'm going to die one day. I'm getting older every day. So it starts off with that biased view, the, the, the ignorant perceptions, sort of self-view. And then it sort of walks you through that. To, by looking at that and accepting that, then you're able to see beyond it. Like in, in the same puja, you can be reciting, um, you know, Jarada Momi, Jaranga Natito, you know, I'm of the nature to age, and then in the same puja you're reciting Rupanganata, you know, the body is not self, <laughs> in the same session, you know. So they, on one level they contradict each other, but on another level it's like saying, well, the, the sun is now setting, because it's, it's evening, it's 6.15 in the evening, the sun is setting, but you can say, no, it's not. The earth is turning. The sun isn't doing, the sun isn't doing anything. It's the earth turning, is make, making it appear that the sun is setting. Because of where we sit, we say the sun is setting. But it's not as though the sun is, uh, is uh, going down. It just looks that way because we're sitting on the, the, the surface of this spinning ball. And it looks like the sun is, is setting, but that's the appearance of things. So you start off with the appearance of things, like there is a sunset and a sunrise, <laughs> but then the, the, the more sort of expansive or, or comprehensive view is like, well, yes and no. That the body is born and the body dies, but that's not totally uh, who and what we are, that, that the body is not self. So similarly with, with, with karma and vipaka, action and its result, uh, and then... You know, the, in a way, by by fully accepting, I'm the owner of my karma, out of my karma. Then the mind can see beyond it. But if it's if it's rejecting that, or f- afraid of it, or or, exp- or making excuses, um, uh, denying, then it is actually reifying the sense of self. I I don't I am the owner of my karma, but I don't want to think about that. <laughs> you know, I want to push that away. But by acknowledging it, like I'm of the nature of age, I'm the owner of my karma and so forth, then that openness to the, the fact on the conventional plane then helps the mind to, to see 
the on things from a, a, a transcendent perspective. So that uh, it can seem contradictory, but I mean, it's all part of the same process. So that the um, by reflecting on karma, yes, the the same place that an action emanated from is the place where the result will be felt. So that uh, if an action was was initiated uh, in one place, then the the um, the effect will be uh, will be felt in the, or be, will be seen in the same place. That's where you know. So that this this person took that that action, so that that person is where the the result will be felt. Um, if you deconstruct what a person is, <laughs> you realize well that's where the the the, the the initiative or the intention arose there with that uh, with that conventional being, and so the result is felt there. But if you if you look deeply into that, then there isn't really an owner. There isn't really a a person involved. It's just like if a piece of wood is on fire. Uh, then that's where the heat is going to be located, is in that piece of wood. It's like the wood is not making any choices. It's like that, that's the piece of wood on fire, so that's where the heat is centered, is in that piece of wood. Because um, that, that, you know, another piece of wood is not on fire, so that, that piece of wood is not hot. This piece of wood is on fire, so that's the one that feels hot. That's where, uh, because the, 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 the action or the event is happening here, that's where the result of that action or that event is, is felt in the same place. So it's a way of, of both uh, taking responsibility for action, both wholesome and unwholesome, and neutral, uh, but also seeing that there isn't really an owner uh, in, from an ultimate perspective. It's, there's no person that belongs, that is the owner of an action or is the, the, the doer or the, the, the genuine receiver of the results. It's, uh, it's a natural process. Uh, you know, and that func it functions according to the the laws of nature, and it's not uh, not personal. Um, so that it's a, it's uh, if we don't have that initial part of, you know, I'm of the nature of age, or you know, I'm the owner of my karma, and so forth, then the um, the uh, the mind is not able to really. Let go, or to to see beyond that. If it's if it's ignoring that, or dismissing that, or or not acknowledging that, then there's a, the attachment or identification with with actions and uh, events is tends to be much stronger. It's only by acknowledging it first of all, then the mind can see beyond it, and that that comes up in many different uh, <coughs> areas. It's similarly, like like with um, the uh, loving kindness, you know the Spreading loving kindness, you know, spreading metta from this being to that being. How does that relate to not self? You know, that kind of thing. So it's a, um, uh, it's a, a kind of uh, progressive teaching or progressive pattern that you find in many places in the, in Buddha Dhamma, and uh, you know, basically starting from where you are, starting from the habits of self view, and then uh, taking things from there. That make it clearer. Yes. Yes. So, from the conventional level, if I have done you wrong, I owe you a karmic debt. It's this kind of karma, mm -hmm. right? And then when you are liberated, so you you no more create a new karma, but the previous karma, heavy karma, still they need to pay. The smaller karma is disappeared. 
That means like when you are liberated, the karmic debt, I owe you, it disappeared, I don't owe you anything anymore. So from my side, it could be lighter too. Uh, yeah, roughly, I would say that's correct. Yeah, that because um, uh, also the the practice, dharma practice is also called uh, the the development of the eightfold path is called the karma that leads to the end of karma. And so then the effects of past causes are still going to be there. So heavy causes are still going to have their effects, um, but the the lighter causes just disappear in the mix. So that could explain when someone is liberated. He benefited his gener- his family like seven generations before, seven generations after. Mm. Similar. Yes, yeah, so it's related. Yeah, yeah. It's a um, the but they, it's it's quite common you find in the scriptures that that recognition that certain kinds of heavy karma there there's still going to be resonances or effects uh, even with uh, an enlightened being that there's going to that. Uh, that is going to play out uh, in its uh, in in some pattern, some way, shape, or form in that person's life. Or like when the Buddha said to Angulimala, you know, bear it, uh, Angulimala, because uh, bear it because you're experiencing the re- results now of of actions that you you would have experienced over many thousands of years, many hundreds of thousands of years in in painful realms. But you know, having uh, his um, head. Um, Cut open by falling roof tiles, or branches dropping off trees, or people throwing rocks at him on arms round. You know, so that the Buddha said, "Yeah, it's this is the karmic result of you being a murderer and a bandit." But um, but uh, you know, if you're just experiencing a mild dose of what would be a very uh, heavy karmic result. You know, if you hadn't realized enlightenment. Okay, so to continue. So we should study and learn about cause and effect. So uh, again, this uh, MA is making the same point. You, to get beyond cause and effect, you need to study how cause and effect works. If you say, oh, it's all just cause and effect, doesn't matter. It's just a conditioned realm, pa. You know, I spit on your conditioned realm. <laughs> I'm only interested in the unconditioned. You know, <laughs> Like, good luck. <laughs> Because in that kind of, um, it's by studying the conditioned, and like I think I was in the morning reflection today or yesterday, was talking about how it's useful to reflect upon past causes, so that you can more completely and comprehensively relate to the effects that they are known now. If you don't, if you sort of dismiss all the past causes of the good and the, and the bad, the, the pleasant, the, you know, the wholesome and the unwholesome that's been done, then. And you just say, oh, it's just the, this is the, the perception of the present moment. It, you can be missing a lot. And that by looking at the past, rather than building self-view around it, then you're actually learning how those particular patterns of the present have arisen. Ah, oh, because of this, this, and this. This is why it takes shape like in, in this form right now. Aha! So it's easier to let go of because of that quality of reflection and understanding. So and uh, so yeah, and that's exactly the point Lumpur is making here. We should study. We should learn about cause and effect. Happiness comes from such and such causes. Suffering comes from such and such causes. Uh, we come to know that there is always cause and result in actions. But the Dharma realized by the Buddha is pacification that which is above cause and result. So that uh, 
because the the dharma is ultimately beyond cause and effect it doesn't mean there's no point in studying <laughs> action and its results but rather uh, through knowing that and not but not taking it personally then you say oh, because of this cause there's this effect aha okay um pleasant or painful or neutral and then seeing how nature works and recognizing those patterns then the mind is able to really take it in and and, and not relate to it personally but if it's just sort of oh, i don't want to bother it's just a grubby conditioned world you know who needs that then there's a lot of vibhava tanha there that's just okay <laughs> But there can be like a, a lot of un, uh, unfinished business. It's just the mind is trying to brush aside with using a kind of high-minded idea and just um, sort of playing the ultimate reality joker. You know, like that's it. I was just thinking when you use the word dhamma, often it's everything, like everything that's nature. So it's cause and effect, and then it's also this ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. So is Dhamma meant to be one sort of ultimate, one whole thing? That's, or is it these, just these two aspects of ultimate and conventional? And do they, how do they actually, what's the relationship between those two aspects, if, if it's one thing or if, it, if it's two? <laughs> Good point, but how, how long have we got? <laughs> Because the word dhamma yeah. can become a bit meaningless when it means ev- anything at all. Anything and so. everything. Well, it's the... Um, so dhamma... Uh, Lumpur Chah often uses that phrase, like dhamma is nature. So it's both the, um, the, the manifest forms of the natural world, like the human lives and trees and air and sky and stars and moon and whatnot. So that... Um, the natural, the material world functions according to certain laws and patterns, um, and that the dhamma is the, the, if you like, the the source of those that patterning. It's the integrative um, principle that that uh, causes nature to function in the way that it does. So dhamma literally means that which upholds the dhur of uh, of dhamma, the dhur. DHR is the root. So like uh, sila tara, the tara, dharati is to hold or to, to, to cherish or to support. Um, so the dhamma is a, it comes from the same root, that which upholds, that which integrates. So I, I like to use the phrase the integrative principle of the universe. So that can manifest as the material world and as people and things and animals and insects and whatnot. Um, but it's the... the that non-physical or you know, non-manifest quality that, that sort of holds it all together or the, uh, that uh, informs the way that things work in the material world. And then it's also that, um, that transcendent quality. That, uh, so I'd say there's two dimensions. You can say there's the, the conditioned, um, conditioned dhammas, sankata dhammas and asankata dhammas. Conditioned reality and the unconditioned reality. And they they all uh, uh, you know, words and concepts can only sort of re- do so much in terms of describing that reality, you know, because uh, along with time and identity not really applying, then words and concepts don't really apply either. <laughs> but uh, I would say you have asankata dhammas and uh, the unconditioned dhamma, and then sankata dhammas, the conditioned dhammas, and they are they're 
all say arising or emanating from uh, the same fundamental reality they're both attributes of the same reality and that um, it, but it's also something that can't really be explained or described you know, many of Lumpur Sumedha's recent Dhamma talks and also in this later on in this, this Dhamma talk Lumpur Chan says the same thing you know, the um, uh, Dhamma isn't something that you can explain he says in his explanation. <laughs> it, it just sometimes seems like, as a, I, I don't know if it's the way the teaching is expressed, but it's like you're trying to get away from the condition to the unconditioned, but the one thing, aren't they, ultimately? There isn't really a separation. Not really. Not really. But uh, it's, it's also the trying to create a, a mental image that, a con- that uh, say, represent, accurately represents how the the system works is is very tricky and so that uh, and the buddha generally avoids that you know so that when we have the description of the dhamma sanditiko akaliko ehipasiko apparent here and now timeless encouraging investigation there's not a lot to hang you know <laughs> to hang anything on it's it's pretty f- uh, formless um and so that 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 undescribability that uh, or uh, like the way that um, how that integrative principle uh, operates in the in the manifest world or the non-manifest, then it's it's hard to create a mental image or a picture or, or words to properly describe that. So the the Buddha's teaching mostly focuses on how to practice to uh, to realize that directly. The um, uh, one of the helpful qualities that the Lumpur Chah talks about he says when when he's defining Buddha and Buddha and Dhamma uh, he says uh, you know the, the the Buddha means the quality of awakened awareness the Dhamma is the qualities of purity radiance and peacefulness that arise when that awareness is operating so that, that the felt sense of of the, the Dhamma uh, uh, when it's uh, uh, known clearly and directly is peacefulness, spate, purity, um, and brightness. But uh, yeah, I, I did note when uh, later on in the talk, this uh, the, this dharma isn't something you can explain in the middle of Lumpur's explanation. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, to continue. Our desire, our wish to know things quickly, is not dharma. It's only our desire. If we act according to desire, there is never any end. You know the story of Ananda, the Buddha's attendant. His faith was as strong as anyone's. There was to be the Sangayana, the first Sangha council after the, the passing away of the Buddha. There was to be the Sangayana, the Sangha council after the passing of the Buddha, and only Arahants would be allowed to attend. Ananda was determined to attain the stage of Arahant and began strenuous practice so he could join them but his mind would not do what he wanted it to do. He was in this coarse state, and over and over again he was only meeting with frustration. <gasps> Tomorrow is the Sangayana. All my Dharma friends, the Arahants, will be attending, but I'm still an ordinary person. What should I do? He decided to meditate from dusk until daybreak. He went at it, but he was only getting fatigued. Coming to the end of his tether, he decided to take a brief rest. At dawn, he sat down a pillow and made ready to rest. Having made the determination to rest, his mind had already started letting go, putting down his business. 
Then, lying down, even before his head hit the pillow, his mind let go completely, and he saw the Dharma. He was enlightened to the Arahat stage. Seeking to let go, we can never do it. We could try for years and it wouldn't happen. But in that moment, when Ananda had decided to stop, to take a rest, and to put down his burden of wanting attainment, just resting with mindfulness established, the mind let go, and he was able to see and awaken. He didn't have to do anything special. Before, he wanted something to happen, and it didn't work. There was no occasion to take a rest, no occasion to awaken to the Dharma. This is a famous story, and I've often recounted it myself. It's a good example of trying too hard, and then when you give up, <laughs> when uh, the, uh, all the, the, ing- the ingredients have been gathered, but it's just, you know, you're getting in your own way. Um, and uh, when Ananda got out of his own way, as it were, people can follow that, then uh, enlightenment was, was realized. So it was also uh, Venerable Mahakasapa had been appointed the leader of the, uh, the, the meeting, and it was due to take place in the Satapani cave outside of Rajagaha uh, at the beginning of the rains retreat. The, the, the idea was they would gather for the, for the rains uh, in this big cave up on the, the hills outside of Rajagaha, and they go through all of the teachings, the Sutta teachings and the Vinaya teachings. And, uh, and even though everyone knew that Ananda had memorized all of the Buddha's teachings, uh, Mahakasava had said, only Arahants can come to the meeting. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so um, so it was kind of quite loaded on, on Venerable Ananda at that time. And so uh, as the story is described here by Lumpur, he went through the night uh, doing, sitting in walking meditation all night long, trying to make the, the, the final breakthrough. And then as he sees the, the light coming into the sky and dawn is coming, and he realizes, oh, it's, uh, I haven't made it, and it's, um, dawn is coming, it's going to be a long day, I, better, uh, I might as well take a rest. And then it's said that, uh, as Lumpur describes it, so after his feet left the ground, he's sitting down on the bench, on the, 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 the kind of platform, and after his feet left the ground and before his head hit the pillow, he realized complete and total enlightenment. So he's the only person to be out, out, enlightened outside of the four postures. He wasn't sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. So he has a special category for Ananda. That, uh, and then to underscore it, um, in case anyone had any doubt, according to the uh, accounts of this, then he arrived at the meeting fl- uh, floating three feet above the ground. So I flew into the meeting, just, uh, just in case you think I'm not qualified for this. Yeah. Because he'd realized the, um, the psych- you know, psychic powers as well. So he kind of coasted into the meeting and settled on the spot just to and make a, a little nod to uh, Venerable Mahakasapa, who might have been scowling or uh, be concerned that uh, Venerable Ananda hadn't actually sort of, uh, reached his, his goal. But there, this is a, a very a very good example in terms of the practice that the um, trying too hard, and um, we can be... Uh, very sincere, very dedicated, putting a lot of effort in. But as long as it's it's got that that um, uh, that kind of uh, agitation and um, uh, the that you know wanting and struggling, then um, the uh, that very agitation is what's getting in the way. And um, so that uh, 
all of the requisite ingredients were were there in Venerable Ananda's mind. You know, but uh, it, it, that sense of uh, urgency or desperation or agitation was was the the, the final blockage. And as soon as he said, "Oh well, <laughs> I give up," there was like, "Ding!" <laughs> he was able to. Uh, that was the final thing getting in the way. And so then, uh, the the uh, uh, breakthrough was uh, was realized at that point. So I think it was a very good. Advice. So then, it's not just a matter. Of, oh, I'll take a nap. Maybe I'll be totally enlightened. <laughs> it wasn't the pillow that was the cause of enlightenment. It was, it was the fact that he had fully developed a, a lot of baramita beforehand. That was the, the essential ingredients were all there, and it was just the, the agitation that was, uh, was getting in the way. So, the uh, as we were saying yesterday, that the um, the necessary. Uh, Supportive conditions for enlightenment need to be there in place. It's not just a a, um, a, a matter of, of wishing or or, um, or or trying. First questions, yes. Uh, I wonder, you describe it as um, because he was putting forth too much effort and this caused agitation. This is what is getting in the way of letting go. Um, is it also the case that there's like some impurity of intention, or can it be simply agitation and wrong, wrongly applied effort, or is there some, I don't know, yeah, I guess wrong intention and the impure, maybe self involved? Yeah, I would say it's, a, yeah, it's I mean, I, I don't think I was there, <laughs> but uh the uh, it, the element of self, because you know, our, it's only with arahantship that asmimana dissolves, and so that that conceit uh, of identity that I've got to do this, uh, otherwise, you know, I, I will be failing the community. You know, I should, I must, even if it's very subtle. That can be part of what's what's creating the um, the the obstacle, and that. Um, and I, I think that my reading of it is the the kind of I give up. That you know was what helped the Asmimana to to desire. Well, so it wasn't just the amount of effort; it was also that uh, I making and mind making woven into it. I should, I must, I've got to. And as soon as that, oh well, <laughs> you know, I, I give up. Then the I gave up, but then the, the rest could function. In, so I would say that's exactly right. That it was that a distortion of intention uh, that's in the mix that was the, the the main troublemaker, and that the amount of effort was not so much, but the the, the intention behind it, and that feeling the pressure of Mark Asper. <laughs> would that be an example of an ipokurisa? Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. That um, and, and one of the uh, and not just in terms of uh, a, a very obvious obstacle with the with the, the vipassana upakilesas. Often it's like I have realized, uh, you know, or as in one of the suttas, the uh, the Panchataya Sutta, is I am at peace. I am without clinging. I have realized nibbana. And this is the very way the mind phrases it demonstrates the clinging that is still there. So. The, the subjective experience is one of great brightness, great peacefulness, great clarity, but then 
I am at peace. I have. Uh, yeah, I am without clinging. I have realized nibbana. The and in in um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Majjhima, he actually sort of puts the I in italic and underlines it, so that, you know you can't miss that. I am at peace. I am without clinging. I have realized nibbana. And say, look, that right there. Even though the subjective feeling is one of wow, this is this is marvelous. This is spacious, peaceful, bright. You know all the. The, the signs of accomplishment and liberation are there, but the the I have, I am is sort of snuck in the back door and is having its its uh, its influence, and so that that uh, and as in that teaching the Buddha said that demonstrates the clinging that is still there. So that, that's uh, the upakilesas are often very on the surface level on the surface they're very wholesome, very impressive qualities, like unrelenting mindfulness and brightness of mind. You know, comprehensive knowledge and so on and so forth, but it's the insidious um, sense of I have achieved, I have got, I am, I understand. That uh, it might be that that there that those are extremely wholesome qualities, but they're they're being distorted by that uh, their conceit element. Yes. Yes, uh, the scene that you mentioned, Nanda. Enlightenment is in that the script Buddha's shadow. Halfway that he about to sleep, about to lie down. What are you talking about? It's in, in the in the movie script Buddha's shadow. That you've written. <laughs> but ma, the Mahakasapa is much better, much kinder. Because I like him a lot. He's very graceful and kind too. Jonathan, is that a printed? Jonathan? Yes, I am. <laughs> 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 uh-huh. Well, it's, uh, it, it may be it's so, but there is a certain frisson between uh, uh, Mahakasapa and Ananda. When Ananda, uh, when Kas- Mahakasapa calls him a boy, he says, there are, gray, there are gray hairs on my head. Please don't call me boy. <laughs> that is my, in my description. <laughs> So yes. Um, so obviously in the West, me hearing Ananda, Ananda floating in, whatever makes my mind go. Mm. Uh, however, as you know, I've done a physics degree, so quantum mechanics means someone can do that. You know, it can be a mechanism that way. But my question is that that story of him getting enlightened and then floating in. Um, the way that came through to us today was it? Did the monks keep chanting and chanting? That story, you know, that the monks chanted all the Buddha's teachings for all those centuries, and then they wrote it down. Mm-hmm. Was this story transmitted in in, in, in that uh, in that way? Or, or um, yeah, that's my question. Uh, I believe so. Um, you uh, the, um, the the accounts of the first council are in the Vinaya Pitaka. I think oh. the the uh, in the Chulavaga. The uh, the story of the first council and uh, that's that's all in there. Um, mm-hmm. So it was passed on from you know over the centuries. Passed when it happened. Yeah, uh, the, and Ananda floating in above the. It's not the only incident of of flying monastics. Oh, it's quite there's quite a, 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 a common, not common, but uh, it's not unusual. I grew up on Hong Kong um, TV shows and films where people flying around all the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, they are uh, walking up bamboo bamboo yes, plants yes. and oh, yes. hopping from one uh, one plant to another. Yes. yes now, yes. well, this is uh, there are numerous numerous accounts. Well, even one of the Vinaya rules is based on a monk flying and showing off. Oh, yes. uh, Pindala Bharadvaja had great psychic powers, so he actually a couple of Vinaya rules are based on Pindala misusing his. Well, well intended, but he had a lot of psychic power, but he didn't think things through, even though he was an arahant. He didn't seem to always think things through. So, um, the, uh, like for example, um, he was walking on Armstrong through this village, and uh, there were this, he saw this really, really poor family, uh, the children from a really dirt poor family, and uh, the, the children were playing in the dust outside their house, and this little girl had a, a a kind of crown made of grass that she'd woven out of like sort of uh, stalks of grass. She'd made into a little kind of crown and was sort of pretending to be a princess. And he just sort of zapped it and turned it into solid gold. <laughs> and then the family got busted. Like you must have stolen this from somewhere. This is gold. You must, have, you know. And they got dad got thrown into jail because they thought they he must have stolen it from the palace or something. So. Uh, Anyway, Pindala got very famous uh, because of turning this little girl's sort of gra- circle of grass into solid gold, and, and they revealed, no, no, it wasn't. It was, they didn't steal it. It was Pindala. He did that on, on the Bindabad the other morning, and so then, uh, then once they they uh, they found out, then he got lots and lots of offerings. They're all about not storing honey and and um, seven day medicines more than seven days was because Pindala got showered with all kinds of offerings, so his kuti was sort of dripping with ghee and honey. Because people made so many offerings to him, because they thought, wow, this is a, some kind of cosmic monk. Like in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yes, yeah. And so the, uh, the, f- the, the flying incident was where he was on Bindabhat again, and uh, there was this big commotion in the town of Rajagaha, and they and walking along, and they said, "What's going on over there?" And they said, "Oh, this rich merchant has put up a a very expensive sandalwood bowl, a jewel encrusted sandalwood bowl, on the top of a of a, a tall pillar." And he said, "Any yogi who can fly up and take the uh, the the, uh, the sandalwood bowl off the top of the pole, they can they can keep it." And so there's a kind of yogi competition going on in Rajagaha. And so Pindala, in the middle of the arms round, says, "Kind of piece of cake," and floats up into the air, picks the, the sandalwood bowl off the top of the pole, does, does three laps of Rajagaha in the air, and then flies back to the Weluvan, the bamboo grove. So again, there's big crowd of people come pouring into the monastery, and then the Buddha says, what's all this commotion? Why are all these people filling the monastery? Say, oh, Pindala uh, was, was flying around Rajagaha this morning. I said, oh, get him here. So even though he's an Arahant, he got his, he got his ear bent by the Buddha. Say, so, you know, foolish Moga Purisa. He got the Moga Purisa treatment. Like, how can you know? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you know, showing off. It's like d- displaying psychic powers in public is not something that a good monk should be doing. It's like, so he didn't really think through his um, his uh, the consequences of his actions. And so, so all right, okay. So he uh, he did learn lessons, but there's um, so that yeah, there's another viral was established. Yeah. And, no, no, showing off your psychic powers for the sake of public entertainment and scoring points. It's going to be a big movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
And then obviously, in, we, we, uh, Isaac Newton's a good simple mechanics and, and Einstein quantum mechanics, but those kind of ideas in the, in the West, we would go, well, people find blah, blah, but there was nothing like that in Buddha's time. They just accepted people going whizzing up and flying. And that was what some, some meditators were capable of doing. Very matter of fact. And we've lost that today, I guess. Well, so it seems. Maybe some of those people in those movies are actually. Okay. Michelle Yeoh actually did fly up. There. Could fly, could walk up a bamboo plant and fly off the top. <laughs> but uh, no, it's that is seemingly part of that 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 world, and the uh, it's it's also interesting. Uh, if you if you read the scriptures closely, that the Buddha himself used psychic powers quite publicly only during the first couple of years after his enlightenment. And it seems like he himself saw the kind of kerfuffle that it got created when he did uh, these particular things, uh, you know, like sort of great created magical events, and that uh, and then he just stopped stopped doing it. Unless there was a, some kind of an emergency or some sort of special situation, that uh, he saw that they're they're all focusing on the kind of the, the miraculous events, and they're not focusing on training their own minds or doing what's really useful for to to bring benefit into their life. They're all kind of dazzled by these miraculous events. So he himself, it seems, there isn't the point where it says, you know, the, the Buddha saying, yeah, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. But if you follow the, the, the accounts of the early, it seems about the first couple of years, there was quite a number of times where he he quite sort of casually performed very very sort of notable psychic feats, um, and then just seeing it for himself, no, it doesn't doesn't have a good effect, and then it it went into the background. And I guess Ananda witnessed all that, and then it got chanted in uh, those first two years. And then it got. Um, that's how we know now that he was like that. Is that right? Oh uh, well, yeah. Ananda wasn't the Buddha's attendant at first, but he he did ask the Buddha to repeat to him every teaching that he'd given, and so that um, so he had he hadn't witnessed every single teaching that the Buddha had given, but when he accepted the role of his the Buddha's attendant, he asked. Can you repeat to me every teaching that you've given? If I'm not there, can you repeat that? So then Ananda would, he had perfect recall, so he would re- then remember what the Buddha had told him. Yes, Phil? Hearing about the first council just um, made me wonder if, if the councils continue and there's some modern equivalents. The most recent one was 56, 57. At the 2,500 year mark in uh, in Rangoon. So that was the last. That was the most recent one, and they sort of that was the sixth council, sixth great council. Do you mean 1956? Yeah, 1956, 57. That's year 2,000, 2,500. Sorry, 2,500. And so that the gathering together of the sangha to review the the Tipitaka and to. Uh, to um, compare different versions and to come to agreement as to the um, uh, sort of the, the text that everyone um, say recognizes as being reliable, and they literally carved them in stone. So there's like 700 stone tablets in in uh, in Burma um, where the the Tipitaka carved in 
after the after the council. The Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw was, I think, the, was the leader of the the um, uh, of the ceremony. So it was a, a great uh, great occasion. Will it be a long time till we have another one? I s- strongly suspect so. Yes. But, uh, I haven't heard of a seventh council being planned, but. Uh, <laughs> the the first three the 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 first one was immediately after the Buddha's uh, passing away. He passed the Parinibbana was the full moon of May, and the first council began at the uh, at the full moon of July that same year. The at uh, the at Rajagaha. The second council was a hundred years later, and there was still there was two monks there that had been novices trained by Venerable Ananda, who lived to be a hundred and twenty. So they were the last survivors of that original, uh, the original group. There was, there was two that had lived all the way through. That were very old at the second council, um, and then the third council was convened by Emperor Ashoka about two hundred and fifty years later, um, in Pataliputta, I think um, Patna, today's Patna, and uh, the fourth and fifth. I'm not sure. <laughs> The, the sixth one was in, in Myanmar, in Rangoon. Oh, was that in Chandra? Was that in Chandra? Uh, no, it was, um, he wasn't there. No. Oh, okay. no. It was mostly, I think, academic monks rather than forest monks. Mostly, I think, forest monks avoided it like the plague. But, uh, it's mostly you know, academic uh, uh, Pali scholars and such like. Going through the whole Tipitaka. Instead of Arahants. Hmm? Well, there might have been a few Arahants <laughs> there. The Mahasi Sayadaw had the reputation of being an Arahant. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but um, it was, uh, yeah, these are the different the, times. It wasn't a requirement anymore. Uh, they, I don't think they, they put that on paper, though. It would be a much smaller meeting and much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, yeah, you can see photographs of. In fact, I've got a photograph in one of the the uh, the books I did. Roots and Currents has a photograph of the Sixth Council I, I included in that. It's in an article called "How the Sangha Decides." If you're interested. So to continue, bit. Understand that becoming enlightened to the Dharma is a matter of letting go. Letting go with wisdom, with knowing. It doesn't come about through wanting and struggling, but from letting go in full mindfulness. When there is this taking a rest, nothing is bothering the mind. There's no desire to disturb it. Then instantly the mind can awaken, as in Ananda's case. Ananda was practically unaware of himself. He knew only that he wasn't getting what he wanted. Desire for enlightenment was thwarting all his efforts. So he decided to take a break. Enlightenment is not something easy to talk about and make people understand. It's difficult to practice if people have the wrong idea. For example, the Buddha said that this place, the place of enlightenment, is not a place for people to dwell. There are the floor and the roof. If there is no roof and no floor, then there's nothing, right? There's nothing to talk about. The space in between is not the place where people can live. And also he's giving this, this talk uh, under his kuti, I believe, and so he's saying you know, there's the, the floor, is one level you can, you can sit on, and then there's, you go upstairs to the, the, the first story, the, the kuti um, 
proper uh, up on top of the stilts. You can you can sit up there, but the space in between you can't you can't sit in that space. The space in between is not the place where people can live. There's no becoming there. Becoming is the upper story or the lower story. If people are going to live somewhere, they must live upstairs or downstairs. No becoming, people aren't interested. People are not interested in letting go. With letting go, is there anything being born? When you go upstairs, that's becoming. You may feel it's nice up there in the high place. Coming down is not so pleasing to you. You feel it's nice, but it is the root of suffering. You don't want to put down this pleasure and pain and experience normalcy because you prefer the place where there is becoming. The place without becoming is of no interest to you. Even just to try to conceive of it is hard. What the Buddha was referring to when he spoke of the place without becoming and birth was just the state of non-attachment. Attachment is the cause for suffering to arise. We can't let go of this grasping attachment and still we want peace. But it is not peaceful. We live with becoming. No becoming is something that we can't conceive of. That is the habit of people, the mental affliction of humans. Nirvana is said by the Buddha to be beyond becoming and birth. People don't understand this. They only understand matters of becoming and birth. If there's no becoming, there's no place to live, to abide. If there's no place to live, what will I do? How will I exist? Ordinary people think it's better to stay here. They want to be born again, but they don't want to die. Is there such a thing? If you want something that cannot be, you'll have a big problem. People think like this because they don't understand dukkha, unsatisfactoriness of life. I want to be born, but I don't want death. It boils down to no more than this. So uh, uh, I thought I would also read the one of the key passages that is referring to this same area from the Udana, uh, chapter 8 of the Udana, uh, Sutta number 1. There is that sphere, that ayatana, where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind. No sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There, there is neither this world, nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere I call neither a coming, nor a going, nor a staying still, neither a dying, nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. So you, uh, in, in hearing that, it's a very sort of liberating teaching, but also can be quite off-putting. Like, oh, no sun, no moon, no coming, no going, uh, no dying, no re- reappearance. Sounds very kind of cold and ugh, off-putting. That's exactly what Lumpur Chah is talking about. <laughs> yeah, to the, the worldly patterns of thinking, all of that sounds really off-putting because all of our usual reference points are saying, no, not this, not that, not this, not, not that. And so... Uh, as he says, ordinary people think it's better to stay here. You know, if that's Nibbana, can I take my dog? <laughs> what about my friends? And I don't want to leave everyone behind. This sounds pretty cold and lonely. <sighs> and so, that uh, and it's frequently commented on by Nupacha and other forest ajans that this off-putting quality of of Nibbana is something that 
is comes from the patterns of conditioning of, and the the mind's habituation. And then, uh, as he put it here, so if you want to be born but you don't want to die, then you're wanting something that's impossible. And so, as he says, you'll have a big problem. <laughs> very, uh, very matter of fact that you know the birth and death are two sides of the of the same same hand, front and back of the same hand, or two sides of the same coin. You want birth, but you don't want death. Okay, good luck. <laughs> but that's just not the way that uh, reality, the way nature works. The Buddha said that death comes from birth. If you do not want, if you do not want to die, don't be born. People think, well, I don't want to die. I want to be born again, but I don't want to die. You might conclude that they are stubborn. Speaking with people who are under the sway of desire and attachment is difficult. Getting to the point of letting go will really be hard. Defilement and craving are like that. The Buddha taught about the state where things don't really exist. If there's no place to set a pillar, how can we talk about building something? That is like no becoming and birth, no place to be born. But when we talk about this, people cannot listen and understand. When talking about self, it's emphatically pointed out that there's no such thing. Self is simply a convention. On the absolute level, the level of liberation, it does not exist. There is just elemental nature arising only for the reason that causes and conditions are manifesting. We suppose that this is a self arising, and we grasp at it. When there is this supposition, we grasp at me. Then there is mine arising together with it. But we don't even know how this is taking place. So people say things like, I want to be born, but I don't want to die. So these are profound, profound matters, but again worthy of, of contemplation. And you know, if there is that feeling of like, ooh, it doesn't sound very appealing or attractive, to dig into that, to explore that. Say, okay, what is it here that says that that lack of definition? No coming, no going, no standing still, no dying, no reappearance. What is it there in that uh, those principles that's off-putting, or uh, uh, why why is that uh, bringing a feeling of challenge or threat or uh, where's that coming from? What's the cause of that? So again, you might not find a like a clear answer popping up or something saying, "Oh yes, of course, because of this or that," but just digging into that and say, oh, "That's interesting." All I know is eek. And that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, that, that's that's a starting point. Something in me doesn't like that. Interesting. So then, just feeling feeling that out, not as though you have to come to some kind of conceptual understanding or explanation, but rather just yeah, there's there's a a, a reaction here that doesn't like that. Aha! That's interesting. And being interested in that again the the conditioning of uh, of the mind how the mind perceives things in certain ways and that uh, uh and also that lumpucha and the and the buddha they they say these things not because they're wanting people to feel threatened or or are unhappy but rather to it's you know a doctor giving you a diagnosis saying yeah this is the infection <laughs> this is the nature of the bug that's in your system whether uh, I say it or not, the bug is there, and so just helping you to be aware that this is this is the bug in your system. This is the the virus that's there, and um, 
better that you know about it and can work with it rather than, than not know about it. I don't know, no, don't tell me, doctor. <laughs> okay, well, have a nice day. But uh, that, uh, that kind of, um, uh, the, this kind of theme, I feel, is, is out of great compassion of these enlightened masters that are passing this on. And it, it does challenge our habits of, uh, of everyday perception and, and attachment. But that's, that's good. It's like getting to know what the, what the infection is. And then you can you know, work on the, the treatment to, to free the system from that particular uh, virus or whatever the bug might be. But uh, to pretend it's not there or to ignore it, then that, that doesn't really help either. So any thoughts, questions? Seven o'clock has come around already. But, uh, final. Yes, Sufi. I don't think you probably have time, but it was just a thought maybe another time that that came up from what you've just been talking about birth and death um, people say I want to be born but I don't want to die I, I often in my um, work as a practitioner have come across patients who are dying but and they may have distressing symptoms they're dying and it's going on too long and they want to die, they're ready to die and they want to die but it's and they're in this horrible state. It's either, you know, often horrible symptoms which aren't that well managed and a kind of, you know, just this sort of waiting. Mm -hmm. But the waiting seems to go on forever. And, and they, they, you know, it, it's a really, I mean, I know the ways that I try to respond, but I find that's, that's a really, you know, how to respond to those mm -hmm. people in a way that, that in those who are wanting to die more quickly than they are already mm -hmm. dying and you can say when you are dying it will come mm -hmm. we just don't know when mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be a great consolation <laughs> so yeah it's something I, I struggle with uh, or the way to relate is going to vary from one person to another according to their own character, their background, how much you've known them or what uh, you're feeling for them. But uh, it, you know, it's also part of it is that the, the body, it's an animal body and the body, while it's dying, it's also geared to not die. You know, it, it wants to, it's trying to stay alive, it's trying to keep its own processes going. So it's a really powerful teaching in not-self. That uh, and that it's a um, that even even as part of it is sort of collapsing and fading, part and other parts are trying to 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 keep going. That the, the whole living system has got a uh, a kind of survival mechanism that is that's playing out. So how to speak about that, or how to get help someone get their mind around that, and it's going to be totally dependent on. Their, the way they've looked at themselves, the way they looked at life, how they see nature operating. and uh, the, the more that people ha come from the place of, this is my life and, and I'm in control here, uh, that, uh, and they believe that completely, then there's going to be even more suffering. But the, the more that you can, uh, I was generally I would say, the more that the mind can see what's being experienced as part of natural processes that we are not in control of, that we're experiencing, but we're not in command of. Um, and then uh, giving, a, 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 say, a quality of 
of letting go or surrender that uh, yeah we you you're not in control and you never have really been in control um the way that that can be communicated that's going to i would say generally one one helpful way forward but um f- for some people any kind of any kind of advice doesn't help i remember um uh one of the uh, uh tan sobano remember him saying when he was with his grandfather well, he was, he was in hospital for a long time, dying. He says, uh, and all he wanted to talk about was the cricket. And <laughs> but de- death and the fact that he'd been in hospital for months and months and his life was wrapping up was not to be sp- was not spoken of. And it was all about the English cricket team getting creamed by the Australians or so on. That was that was, that was how they communicated. That was the the way that he could give advice was talking about cricket with Granddad. And he said there was one moment where about two or three months before he died, his grandfather said, I think this is going to be curtains. That was, that was the only reference in, in the whole dying process that he was actually dying. But I think this is curtains, which means like at the end of a, a play, it's a, an expression saying it's, yeah, curtains. <laughs> and that was the only acknowledgement right up until his last breath that he was dying. So the medium of, ex- of expression had to be discussing the cricket <laughs> but being at his bedside being there being present but any kind of advising or explaining like well not allowed in the picture and i thought it was quite skillful okay talk about the cricket you know yeah In his mind, that's yeah. it. ready for takeoff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's leave it there for today. <coughs> Sadhu Karanga Dhamma Se Sadhu Karanga Dhamma Se